Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Today is a very special episode of Worldly, uh, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. We are talking not about one topic, but about a few different ones. Topics that are all inspired by questions from loyal listeners, people who are curious about the world and have some things that we want to talk about. Now, last week's where we talked about the European vaccine crisis was was a little bit like this. Uh, We were inspired by a question from Christopher who emailed to ask about what's going on uh, with Europe's vaccine woes. So today we decided to really blow that out, and we're going to tackle four different questions uh, that you, our listeners, sent in. I'm Zach Beach. I'm here, as always, with Jen Williams and Alex Ward, very hype to talk about uh, what our so listeners stoked. wanted to talk about. Love questions, better answers. Now, this isn't every question that we got. We're going to do this periodically. So if your question didn't get answered today, I'm really sorry, but we will try to get to them eventually. The The first question that I wanted to tackle comes from Shub, who asked about the situation between India and China in sort of the East Asian balance of power, uh, and more generally about uh, something called the Quad, which is a network of four different countries, the United States, Japan, India, and Australia, that are are sort of like a loose organization, but not really a formal organization, of countries that are trying to work on problems in the general Southeast Asian slash in the general South slash East Asian area. So uh, to answer Shub's question about what all of this means in terms of the relationship between India and China and those four countries in China, I'm going to turn to Alex first. Alex, you have a lot of you have a lot of quad takes. Uh, I'm very big on the quad, which is not something I could say in college. Um, (laughs) Okay, so I I would go a step further than you did, Zach. The quad is actually pretty formal now and and more close than than it was. So what you need to know, here's the backstory on the quad. It is a pretty strongish now grouping of those four countries, as Zach mentioned, that began in 2004 after the tsunami and earthquake in the Indian Ocean led to roughly, you know, a quarter of a million deaths. And what happened after that is those four countries, U.S., Australia, Japan, and India, like were the core group in helping with the response and the humanitarian response. That led to an idea from then-Japanese Prime Minister Abe Shinzo to be like, hey, what if this group got together constantly and help create a sort of free and open Indo-Pacific region, you know, uh, make sure trade is free, that security is, is, is fine in this pretty volatile area, and also, like, there's that China thing that we should probably be countering. <laughs> um, you know, sort of to the side there. So that idea spawned in Japan. It didn't really go anywhere for a while until the Trump administration, where uh, Trump was going like, hey, really worried about China. It would be good if we had a sort of grouping to start the countering. And the quad was basically ready-made. So Japan and the U.S. sort of created this group, and India and Australia joined in. And then uh, that grew in the Trump years, and now in Biden, they just had a couple weeks ago, 
the first meeting of like the head of state level. So, you know, Biden and his counterparts, where they put out the first joint statement, they now have plans where like they're going to help India produce vaccines. They're going to work on base, uh, hurting China's supremacy in the supply chain, et cetera, et cetera. So this is now like the group to counter China, which they will not say openly, but it very clearly is, and also do some other things in the Indo-Pacific. And India is happy to be in a group like this because it has many disputes with China. Not only are they the two most populous nations, but they do have a disputed border, um, which actually a fight over it got deadly last year, uh, which it sometimes does, but usually doesn't. But last year there was there was actually clashes up in the Himalayas. It led to some deaths. It led to a bunch of rancor. And that over, is basically over disputed territory, which is really hard in the Himalayas. But China, from what most reports say, encroached on Indian territory. So they basically took miles of Indian territory, moved closer into India's area uh, beyond the line of actual control, which is the the formal name for that disputed border. And, you know, here we are. So you now have India mad at China and India's going like, hey, really, it's really good to work with the US and Australia and Japan to counter uh, that power and also deal with other issues in the region. So the Quad is like the new sort of hip thing in world politics, if you will. Uh, and I think you're going to hear a lot more of it in the years to come. So uh, Alex is, you know, being uncharacteristically humble here. And uh, I'm just kidding. You're very humble. Uh, he wrote a really great piece explaining all of this. Um, so we'll link to that in the show notes. But one of the things that I think is really important that you mentioned and to kind of tease out a little bit more is the fact that they are very clearly trying not to state explicitly that this is about China, right? Like everyone knows that that's basically what this is about. Yes, it's about cooperating on lots of other things. The joint statement, as you mentioned, came out and they mentioned they were going to be working on, you know, vaccine distribution and things like that. But they very clearly also came out and said they were going to be doing things, you know, to counter like China's grip on rare earth minerals, right? Those are the rare earth kind of elements that China has a lot of and kind of dominates in the market. They're used for all kinds of high-tech electronics and things like that. And the U.S. and other countries are concerned that China has a monopoly sort of on that market. And they're worried that if, you know, China decided to clamp down or cut off that supply, that the world's supply of, you know, phones and things that we use every day would be disrupted. But I think it's really interesting, too. You know, a lot of people are talking about this or, or questioning whether this is like essentially the Asian NATO, Right. And there's some pushback saying, like, no, don't call it that. Please don't call it that. And so I wonder if you could kind of tease that out a little bit. I know you talked to some experts about this kind of idea and and why why they're, you know, some are hesitant to, to call it the Asian NATO and, and what the deal is there. Well, I'm, I'm going to jump in here uh, before Alex gets to talk and say, I mean, there's an obvious fundamental difference here, right, which is that it's not a mutual defense pact, right? It is not the case that the U.S. has agreed to defend India in the event of right. India. <laughs> Is attacked. That would right? be a big and deal. Like, yeah, comparing it to NATO is is more than a little bit premature, right? Now, it's a little bit different because like Japan and Australia are already pretty close U.S. allies and have been for a very long time. So, like the Quad, in, in some ways, is like the traditional U.S. East Asian alliance system plus India, right? Which which to me poses a lot of interesting questions about deepening ties with a with a country that is going in an increasingly illiberal direction, right? Like part of the overarching structure of U.S. East Asian policy was to align itself with democratic countries, modern South Korea. I mean, this is in the modern era, right? In the Cold War, things are, are obviously substantially different. But, you know, we, we, th we think that we have close 
ideological and political ties with places like Australia, South Korea, and Japan, and Taiwan because of certain ideological affinities, namely uh, having some kind of political democracy, respect for individual rights, uh, the whole sorts of things that the liberal or national order is supposed to protect. And like one would say that India would be included in that group for a long period of time, but under Narendra Modi, there's been pretty significant democratic backsliding to the point where two major democracy indices, Freedom House and, and VDEM, VDEM is really the gold standard in academic political science research, downgraded India this year. Uh, VDEM calls it an autocracy now, according to their metrics of things. So integrating India into some kind of like regional defense system against China has its own costs in ways that aren't just obvious from from looking at the map or the sort of basics of the political systems in these countries. Yeah, and this is actually one of the, already the big concerns about the Quad is that, you know, this was initially conceived as like a union of democracies to counter China. There was a, the whole the whole point of Japan coming up with this is they had um, the conception of what's called values-based foreign policy in which like the values of human rights, free trade, democracy um, are integral parts. So India, at the time of this conception in like 2004, 2007-ish, you know, in that time period, this was all germinating. India made sense. Now it doesn't as much. And it's unsurprising that you sort of hear these four countries downgrade democracy as a point. It's like, it's about economics. It's about free trade. It's like, what about the democracy point? Yeah, well, that's important too, whatever. So uh, this is going to be uh, uh, an issue for the Quad going forward. The, the question now, um, now that it's basically settled and it is a thing, like it was not a thing for a while. Um, it was a roughly, you know, 14-year idea. It is now very clearly not a cornerstone, but a pretty major part of America's plan to counter China. And it probably will be for years to come. So give the Trump administration credit for creating this thing that Biden is continuing and has strengthened so far. The question now is, do other countries want to join? Will it become the quint? Um, and what happens when you start moving beyond five when the, the wording gets difficult? Yeah, then it comes the sextet. Who, get, who, who would be in the quint? South Korea? Possibly. Um, you, Vietnam, maybe. You know, it, 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 who knows? Like, it, it's, it's not, it's, right now there's no, like, real discussion about adding to the group. New Zealand. New Zealand makes a lot of sense, yeah. We Let's keep naming countries. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> Can we just pull up a map of Asia and South Asia? Worldly like, shows off its knowledge China. of Indo-Pacific yeah. geography. Our, our own little game show. Who will join the Quint? Um, Worst game show ever. Yeah. So, yeah. This, I mean, this, this is all a possibility for the quad. Will it grow? And Zach's totally right. It's not an Asian NATO. It's not, not only is there not mutual defense, but like it's really not military-esque. I mean, there is a big maritime element to it because of the tsunami response, because they still do some military training. But it isn't like the Quad gets together yearly and does a massive military training exercise that pisses off the Chinese. Not yet, at least. Um, that could happen. So at this moment, it really just seems like if I'm in Beijing, I see this as a growing alliance that's that's trying to counter what I want to do economically and you know somewhat diplomatically and, and somewhat militarily too. And that doesn't make you feel comfortable when you have, you know, India and the U.S. and very powerful countries in the region like Australia and Japan on their side. So does this cause more consternation? Does this actually help the Quad bend China to their will a little bit? I don't know. But as experts tell me, like the Quad, which was an idea, is now here to stay. And it's going to be a mainstay, I think, of American foreign policy in the region for a while. Yeah, I just want to add, as Alex said, you're totally right. It's it's not primarily a military, you know, alliance. It's also not a mutual defense treaty, like Zach pointed out. But they have had some military drills, as you know, you know, in your piece, Alex, in 2007. Um, what was kind of still the early beginnings of what would become the Quad did hold a military drill, and right after that, China got really, really mad, 
And it actually kind of led to the Quad sort of falling apart or not becoming a thing for a while. Um, Australia and potentially even some say India got cold feet and were like, nah, no, because remember, you know, when we talk about India and Australia, they also are very much, you know, involved in trade and, you know, close relations with China, right? It's not just an adversarial relationship. Same with the U.S., right? We don't just have an adversarial relationship with China. We also have, you know, tons of trade ties and, and other ties. And I think what's interesting, um, they did another one last year, but I think what's interesting is that that kind of idea of cold feet, especially among India and Australia in particular, seems to have kind of lessened. And part of that is due to China's behavior, right? Even recently, we've talked about this on the show before, but China has essentially launched a trade war against Australia because Australia called for an independent uh, outside investigation into the causes and the origins of the coronavirus and China's early response. China got really mad and essentially launched a trade war on Australia and started kind of throwing around its economic might to stop that. And so I think part of this, you know, yes, it has to do with uh, kind of the Biden administration and to some degree Trump before that you know, wanting to counter China, but it's also a response to China's kind of more assertive behavior on the world stage that has caused this, you know, sort of union to coalesce a little more strongly than it was in previous years because countries are now seeing that, hey, wait a second, China's getting a little more assertive. We might need to have some some of our pals back us up here. Uh, so now we're gonna we're gonna move on from our discussion about the quad, and we're gonna go to a different region of the world, the Central America. Uh, one of our listeners named Kamala wanted to know what was happening in Central America that was triggering um, such significant migration into the United States, uh, or at least attempts to get into the United States from Mexico and from Central American countries. And uh, she also wanted to know whether uh, there actually isn't a real crisis on the U.S. border and whether this is all being hyped up because there's so much tension being focused on immigration in the post-Trump era. I want to start with that part of the question uh, about there being a crisis or or not, potentially. This is actually genuinely unclear. There's significant debate between people who follow the southern border relatively closely. There's some signs from the U.S. government that there's about to be an absolutely huge surge. Some academic experts, there's a really excellent analysis piece in the in the Washington Post on this that we'll put in the show notes, arguing that there's, there's not really a significant increase relative to what we're used to. This is just a normal seasonal pattern of migration in into the United States. But the, the general point here is that we can't really definitively answer the question of whether or not there's going to be some kind of super huge migration surge or whether there is currently, because it's just not clear right now which of these, these different informed observers is correct. And so we'll be tracking that down the line. Hopefully, we'll be able to revisit this question. Instead, I want to focus more on the on the broader issue that Kamala raises, which is why so many people from Central American countries want to move into the United States, why there's such pressure towards migration, and that's consistent year in, year out, or has been for the past few years. So, Jen, I, I want to start with you. Um, what's fueling migration from Central America into the United States? Yeah, so in you know political science, when we talk about migration, we talk about push and pull factors, right? So the push factors are the factors in, you know, the home countries where, you know, people are leaving, the things that are pushing them, you know, encouraging them or driving them to leave their countries. The pull factors are the factors in the the country where they are intending to go or the region where they're intending to go that are essentially drawing them in a sense of, you know, it could be 
promise of, you know, better economic opportunity, you know, could be better human rights, safety, all sorts of things, right? So push and pull um, is just kind of a, a, it's a wonky way of looking at it. We're talking about actual human lives here. And I want us to be clear about that. You know, we're going to be talking in very kind of wonky terms because we're talking about broad patterns of migration, but this is the kind of way we, we think about it. So we're going to be talking, like Zach said, about the, the what are the push factors, right? The things that are happening in mostly the Central American countries. So Nicaragua, Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador in particular, you know, we might talk a little bit about Mexico, but that's not part of this kind of Northern Triangle region is what it's called. So there are a lot of issues that are kind of driving this. Uh, and th- these are longstanding issues. So we're talking everything from gang-related violence, extortion, really bad government corruption, high levels of poverty. These are things that have kind of constantly been occurring in these countries that have been driving this these kind of waves of migration, causing people to, you know, flee their home countries to try to find a better life for them and, and their children and their families. But over the past kind of recent few months, though, there's an additional factor. Our colleague, uh, Nicole Nerea, who's our brilliant immigration reporter, has a great piece on this. Basically, it has to do with hurricanes. So, Hurricanes Ada and Iota, those were these like really super powerful Category 4 hurricanes that made landfall in November 2020. They hit within a two-week span, and they ripped through Nicaragua, Honduras, and Guatemala. Um, And they caused massive damage. They killed over 200 people. They left something like over 5 million people in need of assistance. So a lot of people lost their homes, their livelihoods, their belongings, right? And this also hit amid the pandemic that has been crippling economies around the world. And so kind of those factors on top of these like longer term, longstanding issues of poverty, corruption, violence, insecurity, things like that really drove like this kind of latest push. And there's also a sense potentially that, you know, the U.S. is starting to turn the corner on on COVID. There might start to be an economic recovery. So there could potentially, you know, be a better time to come to the U.S., There's also some talk, and this is super controversial, and it's very much debated, especially among former Trump administration officials and current Biden administration officials. But the Trump administration officials are arguing that by, you know, kind of changing the tone on immigration, you know, Biden not taking the kind of hard line, you know, stay out rhetoric that the Trump administration did, that that is maybe leading to the perception that it is okay to come to the U.S. again. The Biden administration says absolutely not. We have been very clear. We have put out commercials and ads all through the region saying don't come to the U.S. So that's a very contentious point. But I think in general, you know, we are seeing kind of a confluence of factors in these countries that are really causing people, understandably, to try to find, you know, better lives elsewhere, including, you know, mainly in the United States. Uh, look, I think it's, um, Jen, you talked about this a bit, but I, I really want to highlight the importance of of two factors, right, that make this endemic and not just like a just right now thing, uh, which are corruption and violence, right, which are, which are inextricably intertwined, right? So one of the problems that you see uh, in, in these Central American countries is a weak state that has difficulty dealing with powerful organized crime organizations. These organized crime groups kill a lot of people, uh, and not only that, but they use their resources and their power to corrupt state institutions, right? They bribe people so they can get away with their criminal activity. Um, Both of those things, right, endemic corruption in the state and state security forces, uh, as well as high rates of street violence, make life really difficult for people who just want to live their own lives, right? Because 
you're at risk of getting killed. And if you want to do business or try to cooperate, you have to deal with a corrupt establishment. And you have you may have to pay bribes, and you have to deal with being harassed by the police or extorted by them. In addition to being sorted by gangs, and right, like these are 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 really hard problems. Like some of the central problems that governments are designed to address, and they create constant pressure for people to leave because there are always new people being born and new people who have to deal and and grow up and have to deal with the situation uh, of endemic state failure, not state failure like Syria, where the government basically does not exist in lots of places, but state failure in the sense of the state not providing basic protections against violence that you're supposed to expect governments to do, right? The state monopoly on force being the most fundamental aim of government, um, depending on who you talk to. So so long as the problem of governance in Central America is not addressed, which is uh, difficult, to put it mildly, you should expect significant endemic migration pressures into the United States from these countries. Yeah. One thing I want to add, Zach, that you raised, that you kind of flicked out there, is the gang violence and you know these organized crimes. So when we talk about, you hear a lot about unaccompanied minors at the border, meaning, you know, children who are sent essentially by their parents alone to try to make their way to the United States, often by paying, you know, smugglers essentially and traffickers to try to get them there safely. This is also directly related to that gang violence and organized crime because a lot of these groups will openly try to recruit young children, especially boys, to, you know, join the gang and, you know, at a young age. And a lot of parents basically are like, well, if they don't, they're going to get killed. And I don't want my son to be part of this violence. You know, I don't want to, first of all, I don't want to perpetuate what's going on in my country, but also I just don't want that for my kid, right? And so they're literally just like, I have to send him away. Um, And with girls, obviously violence against, you know, women is horrific around the world, but in particular also, you know, a lot of these gangs and organized violence are not particularly great at treating women well. And so there's a lot of exploitation there as well. So wanting to send your, your you know, young girls away to hope that they can escape this kind of pattern of violence. So that's a, another reason why we see, in particular, this kind of unaccompanied minor kind of crisis that we you hear in the news a lot. So I just wanted to add that. Two biggish picture things here. One is when we also talk about this, we're talking about a lot of people seeking asylum when they come to the United States. Right. Right. We're not... A lot of folks, of course, are coming, and and there is part of the the surge now at the border is is a lot a lot of single men or you know single people coming for work because, to be clear, the pandemic has been handled horribly in Mexico and and in states further south and of course, on top of all the other issues we've been talking about, and so they're coming to the U.S. for for opportunity and also just to be perhaps a bit healthier. So so that's part of this, but a lot of people coming, including the unaccompanied minors, are are seeking asylum. The, their basic claim is. If I stay in my home country of Guatemala, El Salvador, wherever it is, I'm I and you send me back, I might die <laughs> or my life right. could be in danger. And they have the right under international law to come to an, uh, the U.S. border and go, I claim asylum. And then what happens to make it super simply is their case needs to be adjudicated, uh, whether it actually goes to court or like someone needs to be assigned to their case and like figure out, are they telling the truth? What is the evidence? And that's really, really hard, and it takes a lot of time. And so a bunch of people at the board are just kind of waiting to, to see whether or not they can get through and whether their asylum claim is granted. So that's big picture number one. Sorry, I mean, before you get to big picture number two, I want to put a, a fine point on something that you were just saying, which is that this the asylum claim under international law, a very significant point, 
but also interacts with what Jen and I were saying in a particularly depressing way, which is that when you have endemic violence in a society, when anyone is in theory at risk, uh, especially young people, uh, from gang violence in one way or another, it's not like you're being persecuted by the government, like let's say um, uh, you're a Tutsi in Rwanda, right, in, in 1994. It's that you, you are like at generalized serious risk by virtue of where you are. And right, but there's not like a religious or sexual orientation yes. or specific protected characteristic th- that is being persecuted. So so anyone, I think, has what I would see as a legitimate asylum claim because lots of people, in fact, an entire population is at risk from endemic violence and organized crime. That's not how the U.S. government sees it. It's not open borders for anyone who wants to come here from El Salvador. But to my mind, it illustrates the sort of moral poverty of the limited understanding of asylum claims that we have in the United States, that we don't understand how bad the background conditions are for a lot of people in these countries. Sorry, Alex, go on to your big no, point. No, that's two. important. And, and in fact, it leads into point number two, which is, and I feel like a broken record on this show and also speaking to you too, but I still think it's important. I'm going to keep saying it. It is insane to me that the United States has failed to focus on this region, particularly the Northern Triangle and Central America, for decades, really, and when it has handled it and done so in the most boneheaded way. We have spent too much time thinking about terrorism in the Middle East for good reasons, not denying that, but mostly dumb reasons, uh, but but some good. And we've ignored this just horrific set of problems that affect the United States. And, you know, if you just want to be cold about it, they affect the United States more than anything else. Um, but, of course, there are millions of lives um, in the balance uh, from the region. So what we've you know, normally done is the war on drugs, quote unquote, in which we, you know, overuse the law enforcement, but also like militarize our response to fight gangs and, and stop drug trafficking. And like, that's basically playing whack-a-mole. It doesn't solve all the underlying problems of that issue. And we've also just sanctioned a bunch of governments that we don't like um, in part because of their ideologies, but also because they have been pretty bad. And like that works sort of, but not really. And we have sent aid which is important. And like most people say that is the most, you know, that's the best thing we could do, but we don't send enough. And we also just don't pay enough attention or build enough trust with a lot of these governments or spend enough resources to help build them up as best we can. Does that mean the U.S. is the savior of this region? No, there's a lot, you know, we're not the only ones. We could work in concert with other states, but look, this is the Western Hemisphere. This is where we're at. This is also the the border issue, the immigration issue. Um, however, wherever you stand on it is like, almost the always, you know, political issue of our times. And and wouldn't it just make sense, even from a domestic political standpoint, to try and handle that? So there is, this is where like the domestic and foreign link very well. And there's no reason in my mind, actually all of the excuses for why we haven't focused on this to me are terrible. We should focus on, on these issues and provide a better life and try to improve the capacity and governance of, you know, the Northern Triangle and, and Central American states uh, because it is good. It's just a good thing to do. We can do it. Um, we can help and make lives better for people there. Uh, we can also just make it easier for people to enter the United States if they want to and if they have a good reason. This is, there's almost no issue that, you know, perennially roils American politics, causes rancor, causes polarization more than this issue. And like, why wouldn't we actually spend the amount of time and resources that it demands and deserves morally and politically speaking. Yeah, I just want to add one thing. You know, it's also about how we spend the money that we send to Central American governments and Central American countries and whether we should give that money to the governments themselves. I've We've mentioned this before, but our colleague and worldly friend, Jen Kirby, 
did a really great piece a while back, basically talking to humanitarian experts, migration experts, and figuring out, like, what would a good U.S. policy toward the Golden Triangle region actually look like? Like, if you could design the most effective policy to address these issues, what would you do? And she asked all these experts. And what they basically said was, you need to find the civil society groups on the ground, like the small organizations, not the governments, right? Because most of these governments are corrupt, as we said. You know, many are being bribed by these organized crime groups. You know, there's endemic corruption in these governments, in the police and security services. So continuing to give money to these groups without kind of an underlying rule of law and, you know, capacity to actually root out that kind of corruption, the money's not going to just do anything. It's just going to kind of continue to prop up these institutions. And so experts told Jen that basically you need to find the groups on the ground who are already doing this work to improve their society. So the activists, the organizations who are doing things like really basic stuff, even, you know, democracy promotion, but also just basic stuff like hunger and find those groups and give them the money and support them and try to build from the ground up and, you know, trying to support these organizations. And it is hard, right? That's also difficult because giving money to these groups that are essentially, you know, the stronger they get, they will threaten government's grip on power, which is kind of the point. Governments are going to oppose that. So it's not like it's an easy solution. I don't want to make it sound like that. But I think, you know, there are really smart people who are spending a lot of time and energy trying to figure out humane, effective policies here. And it's not like we just have to throw our hands up and go, well, I guess it's just a problem we'll never solve, right? There are solutions here that we haven't tried. So I think it's really important to kind of understand that there is a way to craft a good policy, and we just need to have a government that tries that. And you get there by actually caring about that region more than any other. That's just me. Absolutely. <laughs> So uh, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, when we come back, we're going to tackle questions on a thorny issue in Japan-South Korea relations and uh, how to talk about international relations in uh, unusual contexts. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's insight assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Welcome back, worldly listeners. We have been answering your questions about the world, and uh, now we want to turn to a question from Sean, who is curious about the quote-unquote long-running tiff between Japan and South Korea over wartime labor. So the question specifically is that Japan continues to insist that all claims, this is, I'm quoting Sean here, all claims between the countries were settled when they signed a normalization treaty in 1965, but could the Korean government have signed away the rights of private citizens to seek compensation for ostensible war crimes like forced labor? 
So I, I guess we should start by talking about what the actual issues are concerning wartime labor. Uh, and, and Alex, I'll turn to you here. Maybe we should uh, give a little bit of Korean and history here, what happened with, with Japan and, and the Korean Peninsula and how this created such a serious issue uh, during World War II. Sure. Well, part of Japan's uh, imperialist aims in the early 1900s was they they took over you know the Korean Peninsula from 1910 to 1945. As part of that, they forced women into sex slavery for the for the soldiers that were there. We know like for sure officially of hundreds, but it's very likely thousands. Um, and and part of their role, according to the Japanese military, was was to please the soldiers, which of course is gross and and, and horrible. Beyond that, uh, there was also a, uh, just forced labor in general. So as the Japanese took over the peninsula, they made Koreans and others just do work for free for Japan. Uh, and, you know, it's just a it was a horrible, horrible situation. And it is part of the reason, if not one of the main reasons why relations between South Korea and Japan just aren't getting any better. They, they sort of have a working relationship. But in general, it always comes back to an issue of history, where South Korea, in effect, says to Japan, hey, you need to apologize for this formally, and you need to basically make reparations. And Japan's argument is like, hey, we have done that. Like, we've multiple times apologized for this. In fact, they signed a sort of a formal apology a couple of years ago. But South Korea goes like, that's not enough. And part of the reason that South Korea says that's not enough is one of the lawsuits basically charging Japan with war crimes um, was done by 200 of these women who I will note only, even though it's gross, the the sort of name for them is comfort women. It's no colloquially, of course, it's, it's terrible, but like that's when people use that term, that's what they're talking about, the sex slavery of women in Korea. Uh, around 200 women put forward this case against Japan. Only around 16 of them are alive today, but it's still a very politically charged issue in Korea. And so until effectively Japan's like, we are so sorry, and here's a bunch of money and like, what else can we do to apologize? This issue is not going to go away. And it's just to go up one more step. It just, you know, if you're in the US, why should all this matter? Well, one, it's just a horrible historical situation you should be aware of. But two, you know, it's important for the US to actually like work with Japan and South Korea. And the US is always trying to bring them closer together. And this is like one of the main issues, if not the main issue, as to why the US can't really create this sort of trilateral unit um, in East Asia. Yeah, I think there's also just kind of a really basic thing, which is some of the companies, the Japanese companies that used the forced labor uh, during this period are companies that you may be familiar with as an American consumer, including Mitsubishi. Mitsubishi Heavy Industries uh, was forced to, you know, compensate several women who spent years as forced laborers in Mitsubishi factories in Japan during World War II. So I think, you know, it's also not just like this is some, you know, historical thing that has no connection to real life, right? There are Japanese companies that are very successful and profitable today in part because they relied on forced labor from, you know, not just Koreans, there, there were forced labor from across Asia in a lot of the occupied territories uh, during you know, Japan's imperial period, but m you know, many of them were South Koreans. And just to kind of get to the point of you know, the question of whether South Korea, you know, we already accepted an apology, so why do you keep asking? So in 1965, the South Korea's military dictatorship at the time did accept an apology and compensation from Japan for kind of generalized wartime atrocities. 
the government then took that money and spent it on national infrastructure, economic development, established actually many industrial companies that helped enable the country's economic rise, which is, you know, a really positive kind of development. But the actual, like, individual victims of the crimes didn't get any direct compensation. So that's one of the longstanding kind of issues here is that the individuals who were actually directly impacted by this and who actually were sold into, you know, slavery, essentially, they're still suffering. And yes, they're aging to the point that their numbers are dwindling. They're still knock-on effects, right? Generational impacts here. There's also just a broader kind of legacy of the Japanese imperial era in Korea that goes beyond the specific issues of forced labor and sex slavery. You know, Japan committed all kinds of horrific atrocities and tried to essentially stamp out Korean culture. Um, To this day, it's why North Korea and Japan are, you know, North Korea really, really hates Japan. If you think North Korea hates America, check out how they feel about Japan. Way worse. Way, way worse. Way worse. Yeah. I mean, in their children's cartoons, Japan is portrayed as, you know, the evil imperialist. And for for good historical reason, right? Japan literally tried to, like, not tried to, they did, you know, ban Korean language and made people speak Japanese and all sorts of things to try to stamp out Korean culture. So there's this, you know, it's not something that Americans really know much about in general. It's not something we typically learn in our history classes in, in high school. But it's something that is very real in in the, you know, real lives of people whose, you know, grandparents may have been part of these atrocities on the Japanese side, or grandparents may have been the victims on the Korean side. And so, you know, trying to come together to some sort of agreement, you know, and Japan on its side says, look, we have been through all of these agreements. We've made all of these agreements. At what point is this going to stop? And the South Korean, you know, government is saying, but not yet, you know, you're, you're not fulfilling what you said. There are still victims here. And so, Despite the fact that they've tried to make agreements and come to some sort of kind of resolution here, there's just so much outstanding pain and suffering and just this kind of legacy of trauma that continues to to disrupt relations between the two countries. I, I want to say three things um, that that on this conversation before we move on to our final topic. Uh, the first is sort of on a lighter note. If you if you want to understand the um, the real cultural resonance this issue has. One fun way to do that is to watch a, a Canadian sitcom called Kim's Convenience, which is about a convenience store owned by uh, a Korean immigrant family in, in Toronto. Uh, and there's one running gag on the show about how the father in this immigrant family just hates Japan. And it's just like there, there's constant little jokes and asides about how much he hates Japan. And while it's funny on the show, it helps you get a sense of how deep the the cultural grievances run that in a show that's trying to spotlight Korean culture in large part, even in a Western context, it depicts this real deep-seated cultural animosity against Japan and the Japanese. What's um, the name of the show again, Zach? Kim's Convenience. It's, it's great. It's really, it's really funny. The second point that I want to make uh, is that these cases are still ongoing, the cases by Korean citizens against Japanese governments. So there's, uh, you know, just on March 18th, there was an article in a Japanese newspaper about a lawsuit in which 17 Japanese companies are defendants uh, that's starting in May about, and they're defending themselves against restitution claims by Korean workers. So this issue was not settled by normalization, even as a purely legal matter. uh, Korean citizens are still arguing that Japanese corporations owe restitution to their to to their people, and the third point is this issue keeps evolving, and 
metastasizing in ways that are kind of unpredictable. So for instance, there was recently uh, an article by an American law professor arguing that the comfort women were not actually sex slaves, that they were contractually agreed upon sex workers. This argument stems from like a, a line of libertarian legal reasoning that is distinctly American, but was applied by this person who is uh, in part a scholar of Japan, but doesn't speak Korean, which is important in the saga, uh, and didn't really use Korean sources uh, to, to make Seems this important. argument. Yeah, I don't know. yeah, it is. Um, to make this argument in a law review article, which has generated a huge amount of fervor, but has also been taken up by nationalists in Japan who want to say, uh, you know, these women were acting voluntarily. They were really just engaged in sex work. Uh, why are the Koreans so mad about this? They're just trying to slander Japan. I, I recommend a piece in The New Yorker a little bit ago where another law professor pretty systematically takes apart the argument that this was some kind of voluntary sex work. Uh, but yeah, I just want to jump in really quickly. There, there's a 1996 UN report uh, that the Japanese army literally conducted raids that targeted schools and that many of the victims were children aged 14 to 18 so that the military could ensure the virginity of the girls. So I'm not sure if, you know, raiding a, a, an elementary school and stealing a 14-year-old girl to be a sex slave is something that you can really enter into a contractual agreement to provide sex work. Just want to point that out. Yeah, it's a, it's a fairly, a I think, angry. A, a fairly ludicrous argument. Um, right. But but the fact that the Japanese, you know, Japanese nationalists have taken it up is an important point, Zach. Yes. Um, and that that's what I wanted to get to. Now I want to turn to a question from Maggie, uh, who asked us a sort of broad issue, which is about the, the general way in which one talks about world politics. And she says, and I quote, how do you explain slash teach international concepts slash global issues to individuals such as myself who don't have that background due to demographic or cultural differences? What are some tricks to helping them become more globally aware. Oh, now, I want to open this up to either you, Alex, or Jen. You know, that's something we, we try to do on the show. We think about our audience a lot, and we think about people who don't necessarily spend, uh, you know, all their time uh, thinking about other countries or who aren't familiar with countries outside of their their home nation. You know, how, how do we communicate that to them? So how do, you, how do you all think about our approach on this topic and more generally the issue of cross-national communication? I'm going to leave it to my, to my colleagues to probably explain, uh, you know, more <laughs> better ways to do this. But I think often about like what connects the world a lot more and using, you know, examples that people can understand as, as a way like that they at least have a lot of familiarity with to like make connections. So it's why it's part of the reason I talk about soccer a lot. And one, I just I genuinely love the sport, but two, like it is kind of what connects the world in many ways. It's the most popular sport in everywhere. So even just connecting it to the last issue we talked about, South Korea and Japan. In 2002, there was a World Cup that both countries hosted, and they were sort of like shoehorned into hosting it together. They didn't really want to. And South Korea went way further than Japan. And the entire time, the South Korean national team and like the South Korean country, like the populace were like, we did better than our colonial, like colonialists. We're going to beat them in the, like if they made the final, which they almost did, the South Korean team, it would have been in Japan. And it was like going to be some massive, almost like historical karma. So I always find things like that or on a past show how I explained the Romelu Lukaku issue on the Belgian national team and like why there are some Belgians that still look favorably upon, you know, the colonization of the DRC. Like a lot of these historical trends, a lot of these things that still matter in our lives today and in world politics come out through sport, come out through soccer, it is, is at least the, what I pay most attention to. And so I think it's there are ways to connect what's happening in the world to things that people already enjoy. 
and can sort of understand, like, you know, think of just even the Red Sox Yankees. Like, there's just been a rivalry forever between Boston and New York. Well, you can almost extrapolate that to many other countries and, and, and explain big issues that way. That's just one small way that I think about it. But the bigger point I'm trying to make is that, like, the world has a lot of complexities and nuance, but there are ways to get at the, the trend lines that are pretty easy for anyone to understand and they think they can be communicated. And so I always look for, like, what do you already like? What do you already understand? And is there a way I can explain it through that? So um, it's part of the reason I talk about soccer, but let's be real. The real reason I talk about soccer is just it's, it's the thing I care about most in the world other than, uh, I guess, my, my family or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> or whatever. Or whatever. Or, or um, whatever. Classic yeah. Alex. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, spoiler alert. He really loves his family and they really love him. He, he's being silly. Um, but anyway, uh, no, I think that's a really important point, you know, that Alex, and you're really great at that, uh, to your credit. Um, you know, for me as, you know, not just the co-host of Worldly, but I'm also the senior foreign editor at Vox and I do a lot of thinking about how we bring, you know, really complex, nuanced international stories to a largely but not exclusively American audience. And, you know, one of the kind of foundational things that I think about is that you have to just kind of meet people where they are, right? And you have to come at it in a kind of generous way and in a non-judgmental, non-pompous ass kind of way, if you'll allow me, uh, pardon my French. In the sense of, you know, look, we all, you know, anyone who has specific knowledge on a topic, deep knowledge, likes to show off that we know a lot of things. But you, know, you have to think about what is the point uh, and what is your end goal here. And if the end goal is to try to get someone who, you know, maybe feels a little self-conscious about not knowing a lot of stuff or not having, you know, maybe the, the best educational background or foundation, right? You don't want to shame people or embarrass them or tease them for not knowing something because, look, like, there's a lot of stuff I don't know. There's a lot of stuff everyone doesn't know. Even the biggest expert on, you know, whatever the most important thing, nuclear scientists, brain surgeons, like, they don't know anything about, I don't know, other stuff, right? And so you kind of have to just understand that everyone is living their own lives, that they have their own kind of different degrees of knowledge and meet them where they are. And, you know, I think not to tout box too much, but I, I am a fan of what we do and our explanatory model uh, of journalism. And, you know, one of the things that that we kind of think about is, you know, not talking down to people. And one of the the ways that I, I think about this, um, there's a, a really great example when, you know, th- I think about the argument, and this is not international relations, but I think it's it's comparable in some ways of, you know, the question of, okay, well, it's, uh, it's really cold outside in, you know, there's like a freak winter storm, for instance. And people are like, okay, well, I thought this was supposed to be global warming, right? So you can make fun of people and go, ha ha, dummy, you don't understand climate change because you think because it's cold outside... Well, you can do that, or you can take what our colleague Brian Resnick's uh, approach to that, which was, yeah, that kind of makes sense that you would think that. Like, duh, it's cold outside. What happened to global warming? And so he, you know, did a really great piece kind of explaining this, and he took that approach. So, like, that's not a dumb thing to think. That's, like, a, a pretty normal thing to think if you're just, like, a regular person, of course. And I've seen other, you know, news outlets take a different approach, which was, like, essentially the tone is, like, no idiot. Of course it doesn't mean you know, there's no global warming. And so that's the kind of difference in tone, I think. And, you know, obviously, you folks, our audience are not, you know, journalists, most of you probably doing this for a living. So, you know, if you're talking to a friend or a family member who has a question about something that you know about, you know, first of all, just make sure that you do your research so you know what you're talking about. This is something that all three of us do, even though we're experts in international relations, we all do a lot of prep work before talking about these questions. 
because uh, we got to make sure we get the dates right <laughs> and the specific numbers and the facts, you know, because we can't keep all of that stuff in our minds at all times. So do your research and then, you know, listen to the person you're talking to. What are they actually asking? What do they want to know about? Why are they asking? You know, what are the most important things to, to communicate? Is it a specific date or fact or is it a broader kind of concept? And so that's, I, I kind of think, are the main principles here. You know, being generous, meeting people where they are and making sure that you're informed yourself. Yeah, if I had to summarize this in sort of one line, it's don't overestimate people's knowledge or underestimate their intelligence, right? People justifiably don't necessarily know a ton about the world that they don't immediately experience. That's no one's fault. It's in some ways really rational, right? If you don't have a lot of free time or it's not your job to learn about what's happening in a country that's like 3,000 miles away, then why should you? Right. It's not, it, I don't blame anyone for not spending all their time learning about the world. Uh, I also think that people can learn if they want to. So even if this isn't your background, you don't have experience outside of your home country, you, there are still lots of facets of reality and of these things that you can relate to. Right. You don't have to be South Korean to understand a country having a horrifying history of abuse by a colonial power or a, a minority being targeted, right? You can understand and relate that to one's own experience. So analogy and meeting people where they are, well, assuming that they can follow your reasoning and they can follow the explanation because assuming people aren't idiots is always a good thing to do, I think is a good way to talk to people who don't have tons and tons of experience with the rest of the world. We're going to close there. Um, I want to thank our producer, Sophie Lalonde, who, in addition to her excellent uh, audio production work, also compiled all these questions and had the idea to take all of your questions in the first place. So thanks a lot, Sophie, for, for coming up with the concept for this episode. We all really enjoyed it. Listeners, please send more questions. Now that we're answering them, we'd love to do another round of these in a month or something like that. So, so keep these questions coming. Send it to worldly at vox.com. And as always... Rate, subscribe, and review Worldly wherever you get your podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, wherever, we're there. So come check it out.